Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're more than two-thirds of the way through uh, our series through the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul in the latter part of the first century. And we're going to got two or three more weeks, I think, in this series, and we'll turn our attention to another book. Uh, a few years ago, I was surfing the, uh, the Internet. I was just looking at the latest sports news, and I came across a, high, a, a headline that was both memorable and disturbing, one I would never forget. The headline read, former NFL quarterback Doug Flutie uh, loses mom and dad to death in same day. So his parents were married 56 years, and his dad died of a heart attack. And on that very same day, his mother succumbed to death as well. I know this is not that unusual. In fact, we had a situation in the church that I served in, in Southern California uh, on, in September of 2012, September 13th, I officiated the memorial service for J.J. Johnson, who died at the age of 91. And when he died, his wife Esther, to whom he'd been married for 70 years, you don't hear this a lot, but 70 years of marriage, when J.J. died, Esther was, by all accounts, in pretty good health, at least it appeared that way. And yet when her husband died, Less than two weeks later, I was officiating the funeral of Esther as well. Now, there's a, there's a name for this. It's uh, uh, taco sumo cardio, cardiomyopathy, um, or in uh, layman's terms, it's called broken heart syndrome. And studies around the world have, have shown, actually, that, that among couples who have been married for several decades, sometimes 50 years, 60 years, in some cases 70 years, when one passes on, the other one does so shortly thereafter. Now, it doesn't always happen that way, thankfully, uh, but it does happen this way, and it's caused researchers. In fact, there was one researcher at the Cleveland Clinic who said, it is possible to die of a broken heart. Um, now, of course, med medical experts are trying to figure out what exactly is this medically, how does this work? I don't think it's really that strange of a phenomenon when we consider how God has made us. We were created to be in relationship, imaging our very, uh, the God in heaven who is himself triune, who exists forever as uh, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we were created to be in relationship, and when our most intimate human connections are severed, especially in such an abrupt way, it wreaks havoc on us physically, emotionally, uh, psychologically, so much so that some cannot even survive such an ordeal. To be sure, our most important relationship is with our Heavenly Father, but even those who enjoy sweet and restored fellowship with God the Father, we still need each other. We need other people. Uh, the Apostle Paul has just said in the previous section that we looked at last week, he's encouraged these believers at Philippi to press on, to strive at their salvation, to, to strive toward holiness. And just in case they might believe, like we might consider in North America, that this pressing on is an individual, private sort of exercise. He will tell them today, no, this is something that's meant to be done together. This is something meant to be done in the context of community. So he's going to say, as we're going to see this morning, that we need other people. We need other people for encouragement. We need other people for instruction, for help. And we need other people as examples but not just anyone, these examples that we must look to, are they must be the right people. It's imperative that, that, that they and we, the Philippians and we, look to people 
who would provide us godly examples. As we run this race, we need to pick the right running buddies, so to speak. We run with the right people. And this is what Paul will explain today. So we're going to cover verses 17 through of chapter 3 for, through verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, but let me begin by reading Philippians 3.17. Here reads the word of the Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Now, when we think about the Bible's teaching on imitation, we think about whom we might be instructed to imitate. Who do you think that would be? Well, I would think that if we're instructed to imitate somebody, it would always be, or at least almost always be, Jesus, right? That's that's the Sunday school answer. That's what we're, who we're supposed to imitate? Jesus, of course. But here's the thing. In the New Testament, there are 18 instances, 18 examples where we're, we're told to imitate someone or to be an example to someone. And in one of those, only one of those, we're told to imitate God, Ephesians 4. In two of those, we're told to imitate Jesus. But in the other 15, we're told to imitate or be examples to other believers. So it's not what we might expect. We're actually told to be examples to other believers. In verse 17, Paul again addresses this group of believers with this unifying phrase. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. And then he says, keep your eyes on us, the us being Paul himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. It's also fascinating that right before Paul tells this church to imitate him, he discloses to them his, his imperfections. In fact, the previous section, he says, no, not that I've already obtained this. I'm not Christ-like. I've not been conformed into the image of Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm decidedly imperfect. But he says, still, imitate me. Well, if it's not perfection we're looking to, to the people we're going to imitate, what is it that we're looking for? Paul tells us by this, this way of argumentation called negation, he tells us by showing us what we're not supposed to look for. Look at verses 18 through 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, this is a, about as scathing an indictment as you will see in the Scriptures. And Paul's talking about people actually within the church. He's not talking about people outside of the church. He's talking about people inside the church. But the way they live, or what Paul says, the way they walk, is in opposition to the cross. They live as, quote, enemies of the cross. Now, what does that mean? Well, in order to understand what that means... We have to grasp something about the Roman culture, Roman values. As I mentioned to you in previous weeks, Philippi was a Roman colony, even though it was not in Rome. It was not even in Italy. Uh, it was hundreds of miles from Rome. But the people who lived there, they took great pride in the fact that their city, Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony. They understood what it meant to be citizens of the great empire. And they didn't take it for granted. And many of them had actually worked very hard to become citizens of Philippi. So just being born in, in Philippi didn't make you a Roman citizen. 
uh, like if you're born in America, you're an American citizen for the most part, right? But here, if you were born in Philippi, it didn't make you a Roman citizen. You, there was work to be done. It took, you had to get some breaks or you had to serve in the military or whatever it was. But those who were Roman citizens, um, they really took great pride in that. And because many of the members of the church at Philippi, as I mentioned to you last week, they were, they were, they were Roman citizens. They were, they were demobilized Roman veterans. Um, they were eager to conform to the Roman way of life. So here they are, they live in Philippi, and they want to be like the Romans. They want to live in a way that pleases the Romans. They want to embrace Roman values. But what were those values? Well, they were things like status, which was a huge deal in ancient Rome, honor, uh, self-reliance, upward progress, and sensual pleasure. If you were to try to categorize or list the sort of predominant Roman values in the middle of the first century, it would be this, this would be the list. These are the things that, that were cherished in Rome. Now, as you look at that list, which is behind me, I want you to think for a second about what the cross symbolizes. Think about the so-called values of the cross. Instead of status, it's service. Remember that great scene on the eve of the crucifixion where Jesus, is, is, he washes the disciples' feet, which was a, the most lowly and menial of tasks. It was, it was a humiliating thing, and Jesus does so. It was reserved for servants and slaves, and yet he does so, and he says, look, if you don't wash others' feet, in other words, if you don't serve others sacrificially, you have no part of me. Instead of honor, Humility, the God of the universe, left heaven and subjected himself to ridicule. He was spat upon. He died the most shameful of all deaths, death on a cross. His humiliation was so astonishing that people had to hide their faces from him. Instead of of self-reliance, the cross symbolizes dependence. Jesus Christ, the very God of the universe, refused to cling to his divine prerogatives, but instead depended on the Father for all things. Instead of upward progress, the cross symbolizes downward mobility. Paul says that Jesus made himself, what, nothing? Took on the form of a servant, was obedient even unto death, death on a cross. Instead of immediate pleasure, the cross symbolizes a delayed glorification. We might say a future orientation. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Well, it was for a variety of reasons, in obedience to the Father. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that he did so for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. Those he was looking forward to, he was anticipating the exaltation that would be his because of his obedience. These are the values of the cross and the values that typify Christ's followers. The enemies of the cross that Paul alludes to are those who refuse to sacrifice for others. They want to be served rather than serve. They will not humble themselves. To the contrary, they're all about advancing their own status, their own position in society. They are independent rather than dependent on God. And they're thinking about personal advancement, what the world can offer them now. This is what Paul means, by the way, when he talks about them. Their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. This is not just about food. 
He's not saying they're evil, wicked people because they eat so much. He's saying they were all about sensual pleasure. That was their pursuit. What would satisfy them now? In fact, one theologian writes, rather than setting their sights on the prize and the upward call of God, which is from the previous section, they have their eyes fixed on their own navel. Their God is themselves. On the other hand, though, conversely, Paul says, that we are to imitate those who are sacrificial, those who embrace humility rather than the pursuit of honor, those who actually embrace shame, what's called the foolishness of the cross, those who dare say that they have nothing to offer before God, as Jessica sang about a few moments ago, except just coming to God in faith, trusting in Him. Those who humble themselves are the ones to be emulated. Those who are totally dependent on God and His Spirit. Those who pursue, those who think about what's, he- what's ahead, the glory that awaits them, rather than the pursuit of immediate pleasure. Which, when we talk about sensual pleasure, we can talk about the pleasure that comes by food, uh, by sexual uh, activity, by, uh, by indulging our senses. And of course, it's not wrong to indulge our senses in moderation and for the glory of God. But this is talking about doing so apart from, it's enjoying the gifts apart from the giver. We're to emulate those who see the big picture, which is the glory of Christ. So here's our first point this morning. Those worthy of imitation don't set themselves up as ethical standards. In other words, here, I'm the right, just be like me. I'm the, I live right. I'm perfect. They showcase by their lives the values of the cross. Now, what Paul is saying very pointedly is choose your examples wisely. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, if you're, you've been a follower of Christ for many years, you're, you're a new, new Christian, choose your examples wisely. Of course, don't look to those who are perfect. You're not going to find anybody. But look to those who embody the values of the cross. Those who are humble. Those who are sacrificial. Right? Those who are future-oriented. They're not all about the right now. The very people that the Philippians would have been most inclined to imitate and emulate were living in a way and with a philosophy that directly contradicted the values of the kingdom and the values of the cross. So they needed to hear again, be careful who you follow. So we've seen why the Philippians needed this, because of, again, whom they might be inclined to follow. But what about us? Why do we need this instruction? We know that the Bible is the very Word of God, the opnustos, the breathed out by God for us. Why do we need? I would say the reason we need these instructions, in part, is because those values of ancient Rome are, in fact, the values of our society. Status, which I would say manifests in celebrity, honor, self-reliance. You know, we really look at those people who, who have these sort of uh, these success stories. They made, the, they, were, they, were, they made themselves something out of nothing and so on. We really we look to them, you know. The, it's the Allen Iverson tattoo, on my own. We see people, they're on their own. They've done it by themselves, and we, we think that's honorable. Upward progress, certainly a value of today. Sensual pleasure. By whom are we captivated? Who do we look at and we say, you know, I want to be, I want to be like that person. Often it's the celebrities, the professional athletes, the actors, producers, musicians. 
rappers and pop stars. These are our de facto examples. And I have to say, celebrity certainly influences and is part of the Christian subculture as well, isn't it? I mean, I've been to, for a while I was going to a conference every year. Um, on the odd years, it was in Chicago, as I recall, in the even years in Louisville. And, and uh, it was 7,000, 9,000 people. And, and every time I would see like a real celebrity pastor preach, there would be a line blocks long for people to get their picture taken with. Them. Oh, that's, that's John Piper. I got to get my picture with him. Or that's uh, that's Tim Keller, or that's David Platt, or whatever. And I, and I like these guys. These are I like these guys. But it was there was people just enamored with celebrity. It certainly has influenced the Christian subculture. Speaking of conferences and celebrity, I I spoke at a conference in South Africa about ten years ago, and afterward, when I was done with my section, I was given fifty minutes. After I was done, there was a long line of people that was standing to meet me, and I thought, oh, this is. I said, I have to admit, I did say, huh, look who's popular 10,000 miles away from the U.S. But then when they got up and they, and they met me, I realized they didn't know me at all, nor did they care uh, to meet me. But they'd heard that I was from Southern California, and they wanted to know what celebrities I knew. So the very first guy, I thought he really, I, I, when the look on his face, I thought he really listened intently. He comes up to me, and I introduced myself. He said, first thing he said, do you know Kanye West? I said, no, sorry. He said, what about Michael Jordan? I said, no, I don't, I don't know him either personally. I said, hey, was there anything in my talk that sparked a question or anything you'd like me to follow up on? He said, oh, yeah. He said, do you know the rapper Drake? I said, no. Plus, I think he's from Canada, isn't he? Um, so I said, I don't. Then the next, so I talked to this guy. The next person who came up, 17-year-old South African young lady, beautiful. I could tell she was bright. She came up to me. She said, she said hi there and sort of uh, demurely said, uh, do you know Kim Kardashian? I said, no, I, I don't. Plus, I'm not sure my wife would be uh, happy if we were friends. I don't know her. Uh, she does live in America, but I don't know her. Uh, it's the power of celebrity. And one of the reasons we want to know, we, we, we idolize celebrities because we don't really know them. We don't know their deep, dark secrets. We don't see their foibles and sin, their sins. I mean, unless it becomes sort of scandalous, right? They don't know us, and we don't know them. So it's okay. It's a safe example. In an article last year on evangelical celebrity, Caleb Gregson wrote, This is not to say it's wrong to look up to the so-called Christian famous, but it is to say we must place celebrity power in its proper place. Influence accomplished through the faux intimacy of celebrity isn't lasting anyway. We should celebrate instead the intimate influences that fill up most of life. The effect of supporting presence amid sorrow, the timely word spoken in season, the pointed rebuke from a loving friend. A distant celebrity can only cheaply imitate such moments. Paul says to the Philippians and to us by extension, keep your eyes on the godly examples that you see and know and the people that know you. Know they won't be perfect and, and certainly they will let you down. But they're trusting in Jesus. Imitate their humility. Imitate their faith. Imitate their dependence. Emulate their repentance. And most importantly, imitate their pursuit of Christ and the ways they find satisfaction in Him. So if we want to make it really specific, here's what I would say. Look at our church and look at those who are the most self-giving. Look at the, most, look at the people who live with the greatest joy. 
Look at the people who are more than willing to do the behind-the-scenes stuff where there's no glory, there's no glamour, there's no credit. Look at the people who are working in the nursery. Right? There, there, there's, a, there's a job that's a tireless job that you don't get a lot of credit for. Look at the people who are serving as deacons and deacon types, elders and elder types. Those are the people, though decidedly and admittedly imperfect, are the ones we are to look toward. Now, it's important to point out that Paul's not simply, simply telling us to watch other people. He's also telling us how to live. He says, brothers, imitate me, verse 17, which implies right action. And one of the ways he instructs us to live is with a future orientation. Look at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. This, by the way, was a phrase that would be absolutely, incredibly controversial when they read it. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Janine and I had friends from Ohio visit us a couple of weekends ago and got there on Saturday afternoon. We went out for dinner together and they came back and spent the night at our house, came to church with us on Sunday morning. And we had a great time with them, great conversation. They were telling us about how things are going in their respective churches and how they're handling COVID. And one of them had a church that was kind of shut down and the other one, they're slowly, they've reopened and they're trying to manage things well and so on. And, and then one of the guys said, I don't know what, what prompted him to say this, but he was talking about his pastor that he has great respect for. And he said, my pastor doesn't refer to people who follow Jesus as Christians. He only refers to them as Christ followers, which doesn't, it's not a big deal to me either way. But the reason he did that is because, this guy went on to say, is because the term Christian has a bit of a negative connotation, a political connotation. And so he doesn't want to communicate that Christians are a certain way. Well, what's interesting in the New Testament, the, the followers of the way, which is what the initial followers of Jesus were called, they're rarely called Christians, very rarely. But instead, the Bible, the New Testament uses words that actually, it's actually more uh, unusual and more telling. In fact, the people who follow Jesus are called strangers, aliens. Not that they came from outer space, but outer space, but they were they were not, they didn't belong. Sojourners, pilgrims, as we just sang, exiles. And these were all meant to communicate that even though, even though they lived on the earth, and even though they were, they were part of the Roman colony of Philippi, they were part of the Roman Empire, their greater citizenship was actually in heaven. Of course, the same is true for us. We live in America, and we're American citizens, and we're proud to be Americans and all that. But ultimately, our greater citizenship is in heaven. It's actually part of a greater nation, if you will, another kingdom, another city, we might say, a cosmic capital where Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Who was, who was and is infinitely mightier than the Roman emperor. See, we have our foot in two realms, so to speak, and we talked more about that last week, but we're, we're caught in the in-between. We live in two realms. We're caught in between two kingdoms, but only one is preeminent. Only one will last forever, and it won't be our country. It won't be America. It will be the kingdom of God's Son, the heavenly kingdom. Again, the people at Philippi, they took so much pride in their citizenship 
to the Roman Empire. For them, that meant honor and privileges. And those who lived in Philippi who weren't citizens, they they suffered shame and dishonor. But what Paul says is, it doesn't matter whether you're a citizen, whether you're a servant, whether you're esteemed, or whether you're a slave, you are to live in light of your ultimate citizenship. Now, what this means for us, we don't really have time to get into what this means for us in terms of politics, uh, education, vocation, career, all those things. Certainly the fact that we are preeminently citizens of another country influences our involvement in those areas. Again, but that's for another time. But here's what Paul is getting at by this forward-looking orientation. It's our second point. Those who live with the end in mind possess a joy that does not depend on circumstances. See, Paul, has, he's already alluded to this fact that he has this joy. And we know that he was in prison, house arrest in Rome, and we know that he was not in the best circumstances. But this is really the, the clearest he's been or will be as it relates to why he enjoys, why he, why he experiences this kind of joy. And it's because he is looking ahead. He is awaiting a Savior, verse 21, who will transform his lowly body to be like Christ's own glorious body by the same power that enables him to rule, Christ to rule over the entire universe. But how would that sense of anticipation change the way that Paul lived? How would that sense of anticipation change the way that you and I live? How would that forward-looking orientation actually lead to joy? Well, if we believe that Christ may come soon and that He will transform our lowly bodies into His glorious body, the same that He has, it will certainly change the way that we view suffering, won't it? Because we will realize that our suffering is actually markedly temporary. That's not to make light of anyone's suffering or diminish any, anything that anybody's going through. This recognition does not relieve our suffering. It doesn't make our suffering easy, but it does frame our suffering. Our physical pain will not last forever. One day we'll have new bodies like Jesus' glorified body, the body that He's actually in even now, limitless in mobility, unlimited in freedom, totally pain-free, unaging, without a single negative aspect or anything to be ashamed about. It will be literally perfect. I have two teenagers, and they use literally constantly. Everything is, you know, literally, Dad, I'm starving to death. Well, you ate... I saw you had a granola bar like an hour ago, so I don't think you're going to die. Literally, they use it all the time. They, they, they literally use it constantly. And I say to them, okay, let's be careful with our words. But here, this actually fits. Our bodies will be literally perfect, free from sin, free from shame, free from limitations, all of those things. Now, do you ever think about this? And it means more to some of you, I know, than it does to others. No more joint pain, no more muscle aches, no more sore throat, no more shortness of breath, no more memory loss, no more heart failure, no more cancer, no more incurable disease, no more disease at all, no more back pain, no more dying. 
As I reflect on the Christian faith, one of the most one of the concepts that's most difficult for me to really wrap my mind around is the concept of eternity. Now, I believe in eternity, but it's, it's the hardest thing for me to really get my mind around. I'm very task-oriented, goal-driven. I pay very close attention to time, and so it's very hard for me to think about a scenario where there's going to be endless opportunity. I don't there'll be no need to end a conversation to to end a meeting to end because we'll have all of eternity. Now this is hard for me again because my tendency being on the task oriented side is I plan out my day, I have a calendar and, and apps for that and so on and so I pay attention to every moment. It's so bad that even when we have other people over for dinner like we did a week or so ago, in my mind I'm thinking, okay, what's the agenda for this gathering? So thankfully my wife will remind me, there's, there's, there's not an agenda, there's no agenda. We're just enjoying the people, uh, we're just enjoying our friends. My, my sister texted me the other day and said she was coming through town, going through uh, 65 down on her way to Birmingham to watch her son run in a cross-country uh, race. He runs for uh, a college. And she asked me if she could crash with us for the night. I said, absolutely, sure. But then immediately I said to Janine, like, my sister is going to be at our house for a few hours. I have to figure out what we're going to be doing. And Janine said, what's wrong with you? Why do you have to figure out something to do? So I'm, I'm really, I'm just confessing my sin to you. This actually feels really good. I might just keep doing this. But I, I, I've got this mindset. It's hard to really think about and understand eternity. But the beautiful thing is, on the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be hours and minutes and seconds. God created time, and we will no longer be bound by time. So we will enjoy eternity without having to schedule something or come to an end of something. And that whole concept really just kind of blows my mind. A couple of years ago, there was an article in The Atlantic entitled, The Crippling Fear of Everlasting Life. Now, I talked about how everlasting life is such an impossible concept for us to grasp with our finite minds that it not only frustrates us, it actually scares us. Because we think, okay, what am I going to do with all that time? In the article, one neuroscience professor said that the idea of eternity is, quote, inherently anxiety-provoking. But the realization of eternity is meant to be a tremendous comfort for the believer. What this means is whatever suffering that you're going through this morning, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, volitional, whatever it is, it's only a, a tiny blip on the radar of your existence. It's, it's a nanosecond in, in light of eternity. It's like if I said to you, would you be willing to experience intense, brutal pain for the duration of a finger snap? Just this. If you were guaranteed that for the rest of your life, 50, 60, 80, 90 years, whatever it is, you would be completely pain-free and enjoy abject uh, pleasure and enjoy the rest of your life. Well, of course, everybody's going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to, to make that sacrifice. Well, for the believer, it's actually better than that. Yes, our lives now are marked with suffering and pain. And for some, some of our own church, the pain and the agony that they go through on a regular basis seems endless and recurrent. But when considered in light of eternity, 
it's only a puff of smoke. It's only a finger snap that will soon give way to new glorified bodies when Christ returns. Bodies with endless capabilities where sin will never again threaten or bully us. Now this is why the Apostle Paul would say what he does in Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's the glory we just sang about. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected. This is Adam, our first parent. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Of course, this doesn't mean that your suffering is not going to be difficult. It doesn't mean that our suffering is going to be easy or that we should pursue suffering. But it does frame our suffering. So for those with cancer, with those, for those with congestive heart failure, for those like a lady in our own church whose 50-year-old son was just diagnosed with ALS, for those with ALS, for those with any terminal disease, what it means is, yes, we acknowledge your pain is real. We would never, no one would ever seek to minimize or diminish your pain. But the good news is what you're going through will not ultimately defeat you if you're in Christ. This is not the end of your story. Your story is just being written. This is a blip on your radar. You are a permanent citizen of a new kingdom on a new earth where you will live pain-free and an eternal existence with Jesus. And for those even this morning, again, who are suffering, perhaps not with a terminal disease, but suffering uh, in a bad marriage where you're being abused or you're being mistreated or you're being marginalized or unloved, for those who are, who are suffering at a bad job, for those who are alone, those who have nagging pains that seem to never end, it doesn't mean that your pain, of course, is going to be easier now once I've said this, but it does help to frame it. It means that this is just a small, small experience compared to eternity. Now, I want to show you one more thing. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, look at this next phrase, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So Paul says, therefore, because we're to look back at everything that's preceded. He says, because of our citizenship in heaven and the coming Savior who will fully consummate that kingdom, stand firm in the Lord. And then he says something incredible. In that same context, he calls these believers his joy and crown. And here's what he's saying. For Paul, he is especially eager that the Philippians persevere in their faith because their presence in the new kingdom is going to constitute part of his victor's crown, part of his prize. And what he's saying is, yes, the greatest prize is Jesus, to be sure. The greatest prize is to be in the presence of Jesus. But that's not all we get. We actually get to enjoy all of eternity with one another, with all those who have gone ahead of us in Jesus Christ. Here's our final point this morning. It is our hope in the great reunion with Jesus and our loved ones in Christ 
that spurs us on to persevere in the faith. Paul says in the context of this future-oriented passage, this coming kingdom, this new citizenship, the return of Jesus, he says, you are in part my joy and crown. He is looking forward to spending all eternity with those who are in Christ. Now, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's hard to imagine how we might feel, how it might feel to see someone who is such a huge part of our lives, who is in Christ and has gone on ahead of us. What will it be like to be reunited with a mother or father? What will it be like to see again a grandmother or a grandfather, or maybe for some, a spouse? Or maybe for some, a child? What will it be like to see those who were such an important part of our lives who died, and now we're going to see them again? What will that feel like? It's hard really even to think about it, to imagine it. What will it be like to come across someone 20,000 years from now that you prayed for and lost track of, and you see them in the new creation, and they approach you with tears in their eyes, and they say, it was your kindness and it was your gracious spirit, and it was your proclamation of the gospel to me that God used to bring me to saving faith. And I just want to say, thank you. I praise God for you. That was one link in the chain that led them to endless ages in Jesus' presence. What will it be like to see those people? I got an email two days ago from a man in his mid-40s. I hadn't heard from him in a long time. doesn't go to our church. And in his email, he wrote to me, he said, he said, my wife and I were working through the disappointment and the stream of questions as to why the Lord has allowed us to lose three babies in just over a year. And I read that email, and it was like somebody had punched me in the face. I mean, it was so heartbreaking. And what I said to him was, I can't even imagine the pain that you guys have gone through with the loss of three children? How devastating. And then I said to him, this is not meant to give you unsolicited counsel, but I have to share with you what I've been in my sermon prep this week in Philippians, and I have to share with you what God has revealed to me. One of the points I'm going to make from the text is this. It is our hope in the great reunion with Jesus and our loved ones in Christ that spurs us on to persevere in the faith through trials. And I said to him in that email, how awesome will it be? How incredible will it be for you and your wife to hug and to talk to those three children that will be with you for all eternity? And nothing can ever steal them from you. Nothing can ever take them from you. Nothing can ever sever that relationship. As Paul talks about and thinks about the coming of Jesus, one of his great joys is the thought of being with his fellow believers forever. Yes, of course, the greatest crown is the upward call of God in Christ. The greatest reward is Jesus. But because God is a loving and gracious king, he said, I'm going to allow you to spend all of eternity with your mom and your dad who are in Christ with your grandparents. When my grandmother died, when I, my, you've heard the story a bunch of times, my parents were divorced when I was five, and um, 
my dad was a drug addict and alcoholic and kind of disappeared. And my dad's mom sort of took it on herself to just spend time with us and buy us things and take us places. And she was an amazing woman. Put her, she put her faith in Christ. And when she died, I remember they sang the song, the, the, someone sang the song, Precious Memories. And I just lost it. And my mom was like, later my mom was like, I've never seen you like that before. Like, what's going on? Are you okay? And you know, she meant a lot to me. And now I think, as I'm studying this passage, I think we called her Mom-Mom, which is confusing. You had Mom-Mom, we had Mom-Mom, Mommy, Mama, a bunch of... But, but I'm going to see Mom-Mom again. I'm going to see her. We get to see the people that went on before us who were in Christ. And it was, that was part of the thing that motivated the Apostle Paul to run hard until the end. And maybe that's partly your motivation this morning. Whatever you're going through, if you are in Christ, one day you will be with Jesus forever. And not just Jesus, although being with Jesus will not disappoint. But you will also be with one another. You'll be with all those who have gone on before you who were in Christ. Now this is the hope that only those who have trusted in Jesus can have this morning. And if you're here this morning and, and, and you're thinking, you know, Maybe you've been in church your whole life, but you don't really look forward to the future. You don't have a future orientation because you don't really know what's next. Maybe you're not trusting in Jesus. You're trusting the fact that you came from a Christian family. Maybe you're trusting the fact that you've, in your mind, in your estimation, your good works have outweighed your bad works. None of that will count for anything in the presence of a holy God. But for those who are in Christ, those who have turned from their own rebellion, their own self-salvation projects, who are resting in nothing more than the righteousness of Jesus, we will have for all eternity Christ and one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, comfort us this morning with these words, we pray. Help us to realize and understand all that we have in Jesus. Help us to, to not be consumed with, not be those who pursue, who are caught up with the pursuit of sensual pleasure. Help us not to be people who are all about the now. Help us to live with joy and this confident expectation of what is ahead of us because of Christ and His work on the cross, because of His obedience, because of His sacrifice in our place. Give us the ability by your grace and because and through your spirit to believe it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.